Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Jennifer Danby. Jennifer is a clinical lead and family therapist in a specialist lifespan eating disorder service in London and specialises in emotion-focused family therapy. Jennifer joins us today for a Valentine's special to talk about our relationship with self and how this is affected by an eating disorder. Jennifer also joins us to discuss the research study she is currently working on at Imperial College London, which involves providing psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to individuals with anorexia nervosa, diagnosis to determine whether this could be an alternative effective treatment for people in the future. Hello Jennifer. How are you doing? Yeah I'm well thank you. Happy to be here. Good yeah no after reading that introduction I'm like oh my god we've got so much to talk about it's so exciting Um, and I'm so interested to like how it all fits together. Um, We're really really cool to hear all about that from you. Um, So yeah I think also, I love the fact that obviously this is our Valentine special. And I think, you know, we made such a sort of, when we first started talking, we were like, oh, yeah, we'll do about like relationships and um, couples therapy and that sort of thing. And then you suggested actually, you know, talking about loneliness and the isolation of an eating disorder, which I think is so perfect, especially, you know, Valentine's Day, all you hear is couple this, romantic this, blah, blah, blah. And that can be really isolating and lonely mm. in itself. Yeah, for lots of people in society, not just people with an eating disorder. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I wondered if you wanted to start just kind of by explaining to everybody kind of what it is you do in in the eating disorder world. Yeah, so I've worked in eating disorders for like over a decade now um, and in lots of various different ways. But I am based in North East London um, Foundation Trust and I'm the clinical lead Mm -hmm. So it's a lifespan service, but I oversee um, the children and young people side of the service. But in my career, I've kind of worked with adults and I've worked with couples and I've worked with children um, and I've worked privately. Um, and so I've had like a real opportunity to meet so many people um, that are living mm-hmm. with this disorder. Um, and I'm a family therapist, so I work really, really closely um, with parents, with partners, with siblings. Um, and so I really see like my job as having like a really privileged role. Like I come alongside a family um, at an incredibly difficult time in their life um, and you kind of go on the journey with them. Um, so it's actually like as heartbreaking as it is, I feel like it's a really like it's such an honour to do this job. Um, so that's kind of like an overview of what I do, but I am also involved, um, and I know we're going to talk a bit more about it, um, in a research study that's happening at the minute at Imperial, um, which is a really exciting study into the field of eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds incredible. And I think, like you said, you've, I imagine, touched so many people's lives, but also, you know, got such a broad range of experience of what of um working with so many individuals so yeah it's a real honor to have you on the podcast as well because i think we're, we're going to get an amazing insight into into so many different things i suppose thinking about 
kind of your your time as a therapist and whether that's been with couples therapy family therapy or like you know maybe working with people one-to-one how have you seen that eating disorders impact relationships and that I mean like relationships with other people but also with relationships with the self I think um in my experience that eating disorders really impact on all relationships um I think they come into somebody's life and they tend to affect every relationship whether that's within the family within a couple relationship with colleagues um with peers Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's something that kind of happens slowly over time. Um, and often after a long period of time, people look back and they realize that they're really isolated, that they kind of realize mm-hmm. that they've lost a lot of relationships that were really important to them and not intentionally. It's just kind of, it's almost like the eating disorders kind of gradually kind of pulled them away into their own little world. Um, and so I think, you know, how that looks is very different in different relationships. Um, But I think, you know, often as a family therapist, I'm often working with parents and that might be parents of children, teenagers or adults, you know, like 40 year olds, 50 year olds, even that are actually still requiring a high level of support from their parents because of the nature of the eating disorder and them really struggling and needing support. And so it kind of, these natural like changes that would happen in like a parent child relationship, for example, get prolonged or like, you know, stalled. Um, And so I think it has huge, huge impacts on people's lives. Um, And so that's kind of the relationships more broadly, but then the relationship with the self, I think it has a huge impact. I think that, you know, again, it creeps in to somebody's life. um, And often after a period of time, people lose a sense of who they are. And they actually start to feel like they are the eating disorder and that it is them and that it's a huge part of their identity. And so often, like, you know, as a professional or as a, you know, a parent, you might say, you might refer to it as like anorexia. And it's like the person living with it is like, no, 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 this is just me. Like, it's so interwoven that they actually lose sight of who they were before the illness came along. Um, And that's so incredibly sad because in my experience, like, people that develop eating disorders are some of the most incredible people on this planet. Um, And so I think it's, you know, really, really sad that like so many parts of themselves get lost in illness. Mm. Yeah. That I just welled up a little bit then actually, when you said um, about, Mm. uh, Oh, it's, it's not an eating disorder. That's just me sort of thing. Because um, I literally had that thought, this morning I was like oh I'm better now like this is just me and I thought no 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 Mm -hmm. um but you're so right and I guess I I guess for people that maybe don't have an eating disorder or that are going through it and they're like I don't understand why I'm becoming so disconnected and and so isolated or maybe haven't even realized it why why do you think that the eating disorder can have such a an influence on somebody because you know mm-hmm. I think as I as you were like saying it, I was like it makes sense to me because I've I've had that person say it, but yeah. it still doesn't really make sense as to how something that's not actually like a physical object it almost is like you're being I guess abused by the eating disorder that's how I feel but mm-hmm. it's not like a physical thing that is actually stopping you doing things yeah it's such a it's such an interesting question and I guess this is just my take on it um and I don't think mm-hmm. it's necessarily the answer for everybody but I guess in my experience like the more and more 
stories I've heard and the more like I specialize in working with emotions and like emotion processing and like you know, we're all desperately trying to find ways to manage mm -hmm. our emotions because we haven't been taught you know like mm -hmm. in society we haven't been taught our parents haven't like so intergenerationally we're pretty terrible at knowing how to manage our emotions yeah and so what I've learned is that often the eating disorder comes along at a time in someone's life when they're really struggling with things and not necessarily one thing like specifically it could be a wide range of things um, and it's often at a time when, for whatever reason, they don't feel like they've got the resources either within them or around them to be able to cope with what's happening. And so an eating disorder kind of comes along. And in some ways, it's a really, really good strategy. You know, it mm -hmm. comes along as a way of managing emotions. So like if you're restricting your intake, then and we all know this, like when you're really hungry, it's really hard to think about anything else. And so it's a really good distraction. It's a really good way of coping. And so I think it comes in initially as like a way of coping with difficulties. And maybe at that point, there's already a level of loneliness. Like there's already mm -hmm. in somebody's life, like they're going through things and maybe they don't know how to articulate it to other people or they've tried and, you know, the people around them haven't known how to respond or haven't understood. And so a loneliness already probably exists emotionally there. Like I'm going through this experience. I don't feel like anyone gets it or I don't know who to turn to for support or I don't feel like I can cope. And then comes along an eating disorder, whatever kind, whether it's anorexia or binge eating disorder or bulimia. And it comes along actually like as a friend. So I no longer like, I think when I first started working in the field, I was like, let's get rid of this illness. It's terrible. And yes, it is, you know, it has terrible consequences, but I have learned to like appreciate it and have gratitude for it and respect it because I think it comes along as a survival strategy. And so I think it's a friend initially, and then, you know, it can turn into all sorts of things. Um, and so I think that's how it can start. And then I think as it evolves because of the nature of the eating disorder, often it, it develops in secret. So then people start to kind of maybe withdraw from like certain events socially or certain relationships. And then over time, I think the isolation increases because, again, people find themselves back in that position where no one really understands what they're experiencing. Because someone says, I'm fat. And the world says, if they're underweight, no, you're not. Don't be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so like, or just eat, you know, everything will be better. And it's like, oh my goodness, how much do you not understand what's going on? Mm -hmm. And so again, then people stop talking about how they're feeling. And so another level of loneliness kicks in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so true. And I think that, that, that the eating sort of kind of breeds in the loneliness, doesn't it? And then mm -hmm. I guess, um, I was talking about this on the podcast that um, I did a couple of weeks ago in that you become more lonely and more isolated because you go to less social occasions mm. or you do less things with your loved ones and then you have more time to spare. And because you have more time to spare, you then have more time for behaviours, you have more time for the eating disorder to sort of be in your head to kind of pick, you know, make loads of comments and everything. But something I find so interesting and I don't know whether you'll have the answer to this, but it's something that's been like, I, I basically, somebody sent me some chapters of their book the other day and I, I read through it and I was like, I don't understand how 
and maybe this is just me being naive, but like a, a mental health condition can kind of display itself so similarly in yeah. people, like the thoughts and patterns of behavior that people have. And that's the kind of idea of it moving from a friend to, you know, an enemy or bully or whatever kind of word you want to use for it. I've heard so many people say that and I'm like, how? It just blows my mind, I think, that it, mm. because it is all like in your own brain, like this is my brain that I was given, what's happening for that to happen on like a neurological level? And I'm, I'm not expecting you to have the answer, but it's just kind of something that I think boggles my mind. I'm like, how is that possible? Yeah, yeah I know. Honestly, sometimes I'm like, oh, <laughs> Like when I'm, you know, like when I, someone's describing something, I'm like, no, 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 that's like definitely the eating disorder. Cause I have met this so many times in so yeah, many yeah. around the world, like in so many different cultures mm -hmm. and different genders, like it, it, it shows up in very similar ways. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't know the answer. I guess there's a couple of ideas around, you know, people that develop eating disorders may have certain kind of types of personality. So, you know, often people are really um, high achievers, very perfectionistic, you know, very, you know, very, very capable. And so often when they do something, they do it in a very detailed, very competent way. Yeah. And so I guess there's, there's that element of how someone's brain is structured. But then I think there's the effects of, you know, particularly for anorexia, the effects of starvation. So we know that actually... Mm you know, regardless of the intention, the effects of starvation on the brain can make it very, very rigid and can make it very black and white. Mm -hmm. And so, and then those patterns are very difficult to change in an undernourished brain. And so it doesn't really matter the intention of it. The, after a while, the impact of like starvation kicks in. So then it makes it really, really difficult to make changes. Um, but I think it's, it's a really interesting one that like you can meet so many different people and they're having a very similar experience in their brain. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, it, it's, it's just over the past couple of weeks that I've like been like, I just don't understand how, how there can be so many people that feel the same. Um, also like, you know, another personality, um, quality that I think I've come to see a lot is something that we call in emotion focused family therapy, a super feeler. And so that's this idea mm. of somebody that experiences emotions really intensely. And it's, you know, we, it's a term that we developed as an alternative to being oversensitive because when someone describes you as oversensitive, <laughs> it is never a compliment. It never feels, <laughs> it's like, and, but actually like a super feeler is an amazing quality. It makes someone a really good friend, a really like loving partner, someone that's, you know, often in the caring profession, like someone that's really attuned, but it can also be really overwhelming if you don't know how to manage all of those feelings. Yes. Cause it's like feeling things on full volume all of the time, both your own things and you're picking up on everyone else's around you. And so I think that's also a really important thing that, I've seen in obviously not everybody, but a high proportion of people that I've worked with that they would identify themselves as a super feeler. And so there's that quality in there as well that like, how do I manage emotions? Mm. Um, and that, yeah. that's a really important factor. Yeah. I think that that super feeler thing that feels really prominent. Um, 
and then I guess that feeds into the eating disorder because it's then because you're kind of feeling everything so much more intently intensely it's kind of your the eating disorder thoughts are so much louder the also then like your um concern of what other people think about you is louder and the eating sort of feeds off that but then also i guess with that social element of like withdrawal and isolation it's then the judgment maybe from mm. other people or the worry that you're then losing people but equally i don't know what to do about it because i can't engage mm. so actually that then makes it all so much bigger so much louder and then the eating disorder is just like hi well i've got a really good idea of how we can navigate this so you go down the eating disorder route because that feels like at the time like you said you know it's it's trying to protect you it, it, that's how it feels but then by doing that you then get more engaged in the eating disorder more entrenched more withdrawn from you know real people in your actual life and I guess that's the whole cycle of how it continues and I think because you know you know I think lots of people in society live with you know this little kind of critical voice in their mm -hmm. head that's really hard to ignore mm -hmm. but I think because of this like tendency to be very capable and have high expectations then the tendency to be really critical is even mm -hmm. higher I think in people with eating disorders and so yeah. that's again like another thing that's kind of in the mix like the perfect storm almost that um yeah. is likely to create the circumstances in which someone might turn to an eating disorder mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose if we're thinking about that sort of relationship with the eating disorder, because I think it, it does, it does, I mean, it definitely to me feels like a, a relationship with a, a living person, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of the time. Um, like you said before, like it, it does come at a time where maybe somebody is quite vulnerable and does need some support and the eating disorder kind of provides the answer. But then I suppose, you know, when we're looking at that sort of like friend and then to bully thing, I think once it gets to that, like more kind of like a bully, that's mm. maybe when people realize, okay, I don't want this in my life anymore. Like I think recovery would be a good idea. So how do you then work with people to, I guess, change that relationship with their eating disorder? Is it a matter of we need to kind of you know, just replace it with something or is it kind of, you know, altering elements of it to, so it's more positive for people? How do so you do I'm, that? I'm literally going to say something that's probably like loads of family members and like loads of professionals will be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe she's saying that um, on air. But what I actually think is like, we need to stop trying to have an agenda to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Because the more you try and get rid of it, the more someone clings to it. Because it's like, yeah, the more it stays. On, why would you take this thing from me? Like it has got me through so many difficulties it's been really reliable when other people haven't it's given me structure you know like I've been through school with mm -hmm. it I've been through breakups I've been through uni you know I've, you know I've been through so many things why would I want to give that up it's a part of me and so I think it's about like and I talk a lot about like can we just change your relationship with it because it's got to a point where it's preventing you from like living in the way that you want and yet living without it is terrifying. So can we find a way of thinking about like, you know, sometimes I talk about like, can we just put it in your back pocket? Or can we have like moments where you decide like, do I mm -hmm. take it out with me or not? Like, but also can we have mm -hmm. an appreciation for it? And I, I talk a lot with the families I work with. Can we start to like, not see it as the enemy? 
But I start to see it as like, thank goodness it showed up at a time that helped your loved one get through a really difficult like time in their life and maybe like prevent something really worse from happening. And how can we like try to slowly kind of move towards having a different relationship with it? And I think when we do that, and that's not in any way like a manipulative move, I think some people will then have to navigate life living with it, but in a different way. And some people will end up over time realizing they don't want it or need it in the same way that they thought. And, you know, like, I think that's for people individually to decide. But I think, you know, a lot of the aims of treatment is let's get rid of it. And it's only successive. Like someone says, I no longer have any eating disorder thoughts or behaviors. And I don't know, like, I think we all have things in our life that we rely on. And an eating disorder is one of them. And I think if we can find ways to integrate it in a less harmful way, that I kind of think is a really good starting point. Yeah, I think, where do I sit with this? I think I majoritively agree with you. I, I think I'm hopeful that there is a life out there that means that you don't have to lean into the eating disorder. Um, but I, I completely agree that um, to sit somebody down that currently their only coping mechanism is an eating disorder and to say it's got to go, I don't think that's probably very helpful. And I think that's when we see people turn to, you know, maybe a different eating disorder or different coping mechanisms that, you know, are, are maladaptive. Um, so I think in that element, definitely it's, um, it's not a good thing to turn around to someone and say, but I also think that, um, you know how you were saying earlier about like there's different characteristics maybe that mean that somebody might be more predisposed to having an eating disorder. I think when we when we talk about an eating disorder, we talk about it in quite like a black and white format in that like it's it's almost like a being and what you know very particular things that you do are because of the eating disorder or whatever. But at the end of the day, the eating disorder isn't you, and it's just that you know, some of the behaviours that you're kind of engaging with align with an eating disorder. But when you actually break down those behaviours, you know, it comes from, in my experience, it's been things like that inner critic or perfectionism or low self-esteem and things like that. And I can still have a kind of perfectionistic nature in terms that could benefit me or I could still have that inner critic that could benefit me just not around food and body so I think often it's it's about kind of taking the eating disorder and reframing how we see it as well so not to see it as this big bag, ne bag negative because at the end of the day the traits that have predisposed you are part of you but sometimes and I think that because I'm doing emotion focused therapy at the moment and that's what we're very much talking about is like some parts of you need to be increased and some parts of you maybe need to be decreased a little bit but maybe not seeing it as that's the eating disorder part of me because yeah. the eating disorder you you are yourself yeah and I, I just really relate to that. As you were talking, I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is like my journey with shame. <laughs> like I've really like grappled with like the impact of shame mm -hmm. on my life in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And it used to be like, I just want shame to go. I just want it to go. It's so awful to live with. And mm -hmm. then I started to be like, no, like there is so many times when I am so grateful for that little voice that pops up and says, Jen, do not stand up and sing because you do not have the best singing voice. Like, you're like, 
it shows up and it protects me. And I've learned now, like actually yeah. to change my relationship with it. And it, it no longer, it's still there, but it no longer has a hold on me in the same way. And it isn't crippling mm. and it doesn't stop me from doing the things that I want to do, but it also does protect me. And the, you know, there's some days when it's louder and stronger, but there's loads of days when, you know, it's just in the backseat and that's a part of who I am. And so I really relate to that idea. Like actually like perfectionism is a brilliant thing can make someone like so good at their job. And also when it's put in the wrong direction, it can make someone incredibly unwell. But I yes. also just want to say, I, like, by no means do I think it's not possible to recover from an eating disorder or mm-hmm. that that isn't my intention, like that yeah. my hope, but I guess actually it's my hope for someone, but it no longer becomes like my intention. Like, otherwise it feels like I'm doing something to someone what they're not ready for. Mm-hmm. And I've, what yeah. I've learned is that that just doesn't work. Yeah. No, I think you're so right. I think one thing I've learned over the past few weeks is that, and it's taken me ages to realize this, but recovery takes a while and it's not a matter of just like clicking your fingers, eating some food and you're done. At the end of the day, you do have to, you know, work to basically reshape your brain. Um, And so, and also I had this conversation with somebody else. It was like, what, what even does rec- like being recovered mean? Because you might get to a point where like you're, you're recovered. Um, and I can't remember what word they used, but like, it was just, we were talking about how you, I hope that as a person, I constantly grow and I constantly develop. So just because, and I've noticed that as well, like so many elements of eating disorder recovery, are actually going to benefit my life everywhere else as well. So again, I think it's, I think it's kind of what I said before in that not just seeing, only seeing the eating disorder. Cause I think if, when you're in recovery, if all you think about is the eating disorder, you're still only focusing on the eating disorder. So like, you're not thinking about that bigger picture, that bigger world and you know, how, how you link into the wider picture itself. And I think we also have to be really realistic because I think, you know, part of the difficulty is lots of people that develop eating disorders develop it, you know, in adolescence and it's there for perhaps a long time. And so they actually don't know who am I without it? You know, like who am I as an adult? Because I've never been an adult without it. You know, I've never been in this relationship with my partner without it. You know, like, well, it's quite scary. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think we also have to be realistic that if they recover from the eating disorder, life's still hard. Like it's still hard to be a human and like challenges and like we all have things we have to, you know, as you say, like Mm -hmm. be continuing to work on. So I think we have to be really realistic that it's not like everything will be perfect when the eating disorder is gone. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like the harsh reality, isn't it? And that's why, you know, I think really being able to see the bigger picture in that, okay, so, you know, I'm hopefully going to come out of this other side and not lean into my eating disorder so much. But when I'm out of this, what am I going to lean into as my coping mechanisms? You know, and I think that's often why people maybe slip up in recovery or have a relapse is because they've not got that solid foundation of, you know, being able to connect with other people maybe, or having other people to reach out to or having that relationship with themselves, which means that they can navigate their issues rather than kind of having to lean into the eating disorder as a as a kind of I don't know how to handle this so like you said earlier with anorexia I'm just not going to eat because then I can't focus on what's going on yeah and I think that's you know where things like perfectionism really come in 
and, and can be problematic because actually if, you know, like you have a day where, you know, the eating disorder maybe does step in a bit more, being able to see it as a blip rather than like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, I failed and like now it's back and like, and then it's kind of almost like going down that slippery slope, but being able to almost like have this, all right, didn't go so well yesterday. Like almost like being able to tolerate those imperfect days that we all have. And yeah. I think that that's a real challenge because the eating disorder in some ways, because it has been there as a friend or a protector, it's almost like they're ready to be like, I'm here if you need me. And it's mm-hmm. being able to almost say like, no, 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 I've got it. It's okay. I was just having a bad day yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing when you said that then about the eating disorder being your friend is that obviously we do all have our own stuff going on in our lives. And so sometimes if you, you know, reach out to a friend or a family member for support, they're not always going to be able to provide it because they've got their own stuff going on. Whereas the eating disorder is always there. And that's why I think it's so important. Like we said, it start to have that relationship with self because then even if, you know, everybody around you has got their own stuff going on, you know that you can look after yourself rather than having to lean into the eating disorder. And that is definitely for me, I don't feel like I've got that ability to, you know, navigate, Mm my issues on my own and that's why the eating disorder is so attractive yeah and i think when i you know when i hear that i think it's often like somewhere along the way a trust in the self has been broken like i no longer like trust my ability to be able to kind of cope with what's coming up and so and that's really scary Mm -hmm. like that's a really hard place to be and so i think that's a really important part of the work is like, how do I start to like build some trust in myself? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think a really interesting part of that is, and this I think is something like we all need to learn in society is like mm-hmm. being more connected to our body. But that's particularly an issue in eating disorders where there's a huge disconnect. Mm-hmm. It's almost like people are terrified of their bodies. And so they're kind of living in their heads more and then they miss out on so much information. Like we get so much information from our body about like when we're tired and when we're hungry and when we're sad and when, you know, like when we're angry. And so if we're disconnected from that, of course, we're going to get it wrong because we're not going to, we're not going to be able to meet our needs. And so I think a really important part is to start being able to like tune in and build that relationship with the body and start to be able to trust that the body's going to actually guide them in a really helpful way. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's work for all of us to be doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're particularly challenging for somebody who has an eating disorder. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, as a society, we have become a society that does struggle with kind of slowing down, knowing when we need rest. It's a very like, go, go, go. Um, you know, rest is weakness or whatever. Um, but actually it's probably much much stronger because you're able to acknowledge what's going on and listen to yourself um so i wanted to move on um to the study that you're conducting um because i want us to be able to talk about that as well so mm-hmm. for the listeners could you describe what the study is that you're doing yeah so it's a study um that's being run by imperial um by the psychedelic center and we're looking at um So it's a clinical trial, but in the very early stages in terms of kind of looking at could psychedelic assisted psychotherapy be a potential treatment for anorexia nervosa. So we're looking um, 
for this particular study, only at females um, between the age of 21 and 65 that have had an eating disorder for three years or more, where conventional treatment may not have been as effective as they would have needed. Um, and so people are recruited into the study and they will have, we're using um, psilocybin, so that's the active compound from magic mushrooms. And so people will have three doses kind of two weeks apart. Um, and one of, at least one of those doses will be a high dose. Um, and then alongside, so that there'll be lots of kind of preparation and what we call integrations, which is kind of like therapy to kind of think about the things that come up in the sessions. How do we make sense of them and how could we kind of weave them into your life in a way that could support you to perhaps make changes or live in a different way? So, wow. yeah, we, we've been running it um, for nearly two years now. So we're coming towards the end of it. Um, we'll be <laughs> finishing this summer. And so what happens when when people have the psychedelic drug? Um, is it kind of they go on their way or do they stay with you? What what happens well, with that? Yeah, so it, it all happens um, in our research centre. So somebody would come in um, on what we call like a dosing day and they would be um, they're allocated yeah. two guides. So like two therapists that will work alongside them for the whole part of the study. Um, and on a dosing day, they'll come in kind of at nine and they'll be with us all through the day to like maybe six in the evening. And we're in the room with them the whole time. Um, wow. And so they have um, headphones with we've got a specially curated playlist. And that's really like the therapist in the room. The music really is the main guide that takes people um, on a journey. Um, and then they have an eye mask on as well. Um, and so for lots of people, it's a really inward journey um mm -hmm. where they're kind of maybe meeting parts of themselves that they haven't seen for a long time or haven't met before um sometimes people are revisiting experiences um re revisiting traumas um it can be really really varied i would say every experience is is very different mm -hmm. um but it's a very very supported um experience so we're working alongside somebody um during the day that is something that comes up that's challenging or that feels frightening that we kind of work, we support them to work through it. And I think that mm -hmm. is really, really important when we're talking about any kind of psychedelic medicine, it's really important to kind of think about the setting in which it happens. Um, and so that's where it's kind of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Right. Okay. And so how are you measuring the outcomes or, or what outcomes are you measuring in terms of like to see if there are benefits from yeah so we have like a million different measures um <laughs> <laughs> but our main one that we're looking at is um the ede um, the interview um, and the questionnaire um mm -hmm. which is kind of looking at different eating disorder thoughts and behaviors and so we're not actually measuring weight so we measure it for safety but that's not one of our outcome um measures and i think that's been really really important actually i think the fact that the focus hasn't been on weight has enabled people mm -hmm. to come in and almost like i don't know whether it's created a sense of like freedom that we're not going to be kind of talking about it all the time and that's allowed all the things to come up and be the focus um mm -hmm. so i think that's been an important element yeah, I think that's really important. I've, I've heard so many people say, you know, when I first started treatment, like weight wasn't a massive thing for me, but being weighed every week mm -hmm. 
it's now obviously a massive thing. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And I think that idea of sort of, you know, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So there are, there is a therapist with you as you're working through that. Um, so it, would that be kind of, if somebody was experiencing, you know, revisiting a traumatic experience or something like that, um, how do you kind of understand or how do you work, do you work through that with them in the moment or do they sort of just like experience it and then you talk about it afterwards? How does that work? Yeah. So, um, with each session, people kind of set an intention. So that's kind of maybe something that they would hope to kind of think about or work through. And that may or may not be eating disorder related. So someone might kind of say, mm -hmm. you know, why am I so stuck with anorexia? Why can't I move on? Or it might mm -hmm. be, you know, I really want to kind of be able to be more connected to my emotions. You know, it could be anything. We don't have an agenda about what the intention is. Mm -hmm. Um, but we hold it loosely because what I think what we've learned is whatever needs to happen will come up. Um, yeah. And so for some people, they have really beautiful experiences and some people can have, you know, quite frightening, you know, like, I guess in some ways what the eating disorder is trying to protect someone from, um, it might be that there's this opportunity, do I go and look at these things? You know, do I re go and revi revisit, I don't know, a difficult relationship that I've had or an experience of being bullied or what it was like to be in hospital or, you know, any number of things. And I guess, although you're in an altered state, you still have choices. So it might be like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, like I'm getting this like memory of something and I don't know whether I want to go and look at it or not because it's frightening. And so I guess with the support of your guides, then we would work out like it's now the right time. You know, like, what is the things that we can do that would support you to maybe have a look at it? Because I guess what we know is that often by avoiding emotions, they don't go away. Um, and so often we're kind of running away from experiences for our whole lives. And so what we want to try and do is encourage people to find ways to look, to work through it with the idea that potentially like there might be some relief or some healing on the other side. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess, like you said, that it might be that you're just not ready in that moment, but then, you know, there may come a time that you are ready. And I guess it just might unlock doors that re like remain quite firmly closed without that assistance. Um, why did you, like, what, what sort of was the thought behind it? Like, has there been other mental health conditions that psychedelics have been used for? Or was it specifically like they've been researching anorexia? Yeah, so Imperial um, has done some really big studies into depression. Um, mm -hmm. And at the minute, the, there's a number of other studies going on. And around the world, I guess so far, it's kind of looked at substance misuse, um, OCD, depression. It's been used um, in end of life, like fear of end of life. Um, mm -hmm. And so kind of thinking about it in particular for eating disorders, it's, you know, a very serious mental health condition where, you know, when conventional treatment works, that's brilliant, but we know it doesn't work for anywhere near enough people. Um, and so we need, we need to be exploring alternatives in the, in the field. Um, and I guess part of the rationale is that we know that often with people with anorexia in particular, there's very rigid thinking, like we talked about before, like very black and white thinking. And so it can be really, really difficult to make changes. And how psychedelics work is that they create much more connectivity and communication within the brain. And so it kind of opens up 
way more kind of thoughts, ideas, opportunities. And so I guess the hope was by doing that, will it allow people to maybe access parts of themselves that either they had suppressed so much that they kind of weren't aware of or that they were, you know, too afraid to revisit um, in the hope that maybe in being able to do that, it could create this kind of opportunity to then be able to make changes. And so I think it's really important to say like, it is by no means like a magic fix. It still yeah. requires a whole lot of like, you know, you don't take some psilocybin and wake up the next day and anorexia is gone. Like you still have to eat and you still have to manage, you know, exercise and you still have to, you know, manage all of the, the critical thoughts. So you still have to work hard, but sometimes it's give it, it, I guess the hope is that it would give people different ways of thinking where change may feel more possible. Yeah. I think that's why this I found so interesting. And as you've been talking, because it's not a, um, it's not directly correlated to eating and weight. Like you said, it's, it's trying to tap into things a bit further that may have been suppressed by the eating disorder. Mm. And it really reminds me actually, so I did EMDR and mm. it feels very similar to that in the sense of kind of really trying to tap into something that's very buried very deeply mm -hmm. that you don't currently have access to and bringing that up and then being able to process that with a therapist um so that feels really similar but I think also what I like is um I've read quite a lot of research about like um using cannabis and things like that as a sort of mechanism for anorexia because it will promote people's hunger cues and stuff like that but what I don't like about that is that you then I think it could almost develop a reliance on mm. cannabis or almost that like permission to eat because you know everybody gets the munchies or, or whatever um but with this it's it's not a long-term thing it's not kind of giving people permission to eat it's it's trying to tap into things deeper um mm. in order to access that for, for long-term therapy so it's, it's almost like a, a kickstart um into the therapy rather than a kickstart into eating yeah and so i think it's really important to say like psilocybin is a really really safe medicine so it doesn't really have any mm. addictive properties that we know um right and that was so, another thing I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah, so it's a really safe, and I think, you know, that's you know really important because often people with eating disorders are quite risk adverse. So, you know, mm -hmm. you know, but lots of people don't even drink. So actually the idea of taking a psychedelic drug, you know, would terrify people. So I think this has been really important. Like we can show like this, you know, this is the evidence about um, these types of medicines and that they're not addictive. And I think that's been really important. But I think what's really, really beautiful about this work is that it's the way that psychedelics work is often people say that they feel more connected to their body and to themselves. And this is like generally in psychedelic um, research and medicine. And so people often will report afterwards an increase in like love for others and love for the self. And so like if that could work in eating disorders, like, wouldn't that be amazing? Mm -hmm. Because that's what we need. Yeah. And actually it's the self healing the self. So all of the stuff mm -hmm. that comes up is within the person. And actually there's very, whilst like there's therapists there and we are, you know, there to support 
a lot of the, the material, like the majority of it is coming from the person. And so that's also so empowering because it's like, it's coming from within. And so that in itself starts to build like what we talked about earlier, like this sense of trust or starts to build the relationship with the self because it's like, oh, actually, like I can listen to my body and it will tell me when I'm hungry and it will tell me when I'm full or, you know, it will let me know when I'm tired or, you know, it is okay to be sad and to allow myself to cry and, and know that it's not going to do that forever. So I think that that's been a really, really important part of the work and and an important part of the rationale of what we would hope would come out of this type of work. Yeah. And that's wonderful that, you know, it ties so nicely in what we were saying earlier about being able to build that connection with the self. I guess I know that you said that um, the psilocybin itself wasn't addictive, but is there any concern that, I guess that like that feeling of, you know, loving other people and having more self-love and stuff like that. If that's a feeling that people aren't familiar with, but obviously is a really nice feeling. Do you think there's any chance that people would then maybe want to engage in psychedelics more in order to get that, to kind of get that feeling more often? I think that's a really good question. I think my experience is that to get to that point, it's quite a challenging journey. So it's not like you take it and it's right. like, whoa, I feel loads of love. And like, this is, you know, <laughs> like really fun and exciting. Yeah. I think it comes from a lot of hard work in session and having to kind of work mm-hmm. through perhaps a lot of fears, a lot of grief, um, and then getting to that point. So I don't think, you know, I think right a lot of the time, um, in psychedelic medicine, people will say like it was one of the most profound experiences of their life and kind of rate it in a similar way to kind of getting married or the birth of a child. But it's not something they want to do every day. Like it's not a walk right. in the park. Yeah. Um, so I think people can have a lot of gratitude for it without. And, and also like the effects can be really long lasting because then people go on and make changes. And it's those changes that then, you know, help people like on the depression style. Uh, study, you know, I guess if you, you're depressed and you're isolated and then the depression lifts a little bit, I guess you would hope that then people's quality of life might improve. Mm-hmm. And I guess we would hope that in eating disorders as well, you might be able to kind of feel more connected to other people. You might be able to build relationships and do things socially. And so your quality of life improves. And that's the thing that then reinforces like the loving feeling, not mm-hmm. the medicine in itself. The drug. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I'm so glad I asked the question because, um, well, I didn't want people just sitting at home thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to go take some magic mushrooms and then I'll feel all warm and fuzzy inside and I won't have an eating disorder anymore. Um, Because I could completely understand that that was very far from the truth. Um, But I also, I think um, how that ties back into, you know, ultimately, I think with any eating disorder therapy that you do, often it kind of just there is no quick fix but and this is why I think that we do need to have such a wide range of therapeutic interventions for people because everybody just kind of needs that one thing that unclicks something inside of them whatever it is that it unclicks but you know that could be slightly improving your quality of life and then being like this is what 
this is this is worth it this is what i need and i think when you're in the depth of an eating disorder you're so consumed by it that it's so difficult to see that life could be any different but being able to have a little glimmer of something more positive that you know that better life you know where there's there's not an eating disorder crippling you to see that and think and to get a taste for that pardon the pun um i think that is like a really important thing in therapy and that's why i don't think in my opinion i i I completely understand that sometimes people do need to you know be on a very strict meal plan and, and that but i think it it doesn't provide hope it doesn't give that glimmer because recovery is really hard and obviously you have to work really hard to get to a point where you get that glimmer mm-hmm. um but i think the like sluggish groundhog day of you know not doing something that provides hope um i don't mm-hmm. think it works like and i think that's why we probably see a lot of people with kind of the the normalized interventions maybe not being as successful for yeah and i think you know again for me it comes back with that relationship with the self and and trust it's like developing a trust in self then you would expect being able to trust that i can eat something and know when to stop because i'm going to know when i'm full and so those things you know it's kind of like which way around do you do you approach treatment and you know for some people because of the incredible risks associated with eating disorders, sometimes it has to be food first. And that's like a life-saving yeah. method. And, but for other people, like that hasn't worked and, or it's maybe, they maybe do are in a, in a safer position where they could maybe approach it from a different angle um, with the, with the hope of getting to the same place eventually. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I guess, to kind of round us up and finish it off, what are the hopes for the study going forward? Because it sounds like it's, you know, it's got really great potential. Um, is this something that, you know, you hope to make, I guess, normalised within the NHS or what sort of other hopes going forward? That would be the ideal. I guess we need to see the results and see whether it's been effective. Um, yeah. And- <laughs> following people up um to 12 months afterwards as well so i think that's really important because we know like sustained change is really important um in eating disorders so i think that's going to be number one i think having it as an option that could be available in the future in the nhs if it is effective would be great and not like something that isn't available like where people have to you know go underground because I think that's when it becomes unsafe or when they have to go to different mm-hmm. countries because then it's like it makes it impractical um and so I think trying to find ways of providing this type of work in a safe way that's accessible to everybody um is going to be really important I think what's been really good about the study at Imperial is we've worked with specialist NHS eating disorder services across the country so everybody has to have has to be in a service and the service has to consent to them taking part and everybody has to have um a support person so somebody that's important in their life whether it's a friend or a sibling or a partner or a parent also sign up to the study so we've really like wanted it to be a package of care um and so i think kind of thinking about how could that look in the future um i i would love for it to be something that could be available in our health um service but 
I think there's going to be a lot of work that happens before then. Yeah. 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 I think um, you're right. I'm, and I think that's, you know, it's very optimistic. Um, is optimistic the right word? No. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. But I think it would be completely brilliant. If yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're being very optimistic and that is good. Um, but I don't want I, the way that I said optimistic, it made me think like, too optimistic if that makes sense which is not what i meant in the slightest yeah. um no and i think i i mean that is my sort of hope for eating disorders in the future is that we've got several different interventions that means that people kind of aren't just put into a box of you have this eating disorder therefore you have this treatment oh it didn't work see you later um i think we all need different things and that that really needs to be recognized yeah we need um, lots of options so yeah, absolutely. Um, so is there anywhere that people can keep up to date with the research that you're doing or if they want to get in contact with you? Yeah, so um, people can look at um, on the Imperial website. Um, we're going to be coming towards the end of our recruitment shortly, um, but there are other studies that are happening. Um, so I know Compass are also doing a study um, in the UK. So I think and hopefully there'll be more studies to come because um, I know there's a, a lot of interest and a lot of need. Um, so, yeah, probably mm -hmm. they're the main places to check out. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has honestly been such an amazing episode. And I think I'm so glad that we did like a full circle. It all linked yeah. together so nicely. Yeah, it's been really lovely talking to you. Thanks, Hannah. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.